because of the Armada, actually, she, she had her Armada moment, which she, she didn't really like war. She was averse to war. She, she didn't want it. But she knew how to make the most of it. And so with that famous Tilbury speech, she was able to create a, a really lasting image of herself as a warrior queen. And she never was a warrior queen in any way. She never led troops, never wanted to fight. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast and today's episode is all about Elizabeth I but in a slightly different way. Stephen Virapen joins me to discuss her perception. This comes about in two parts. First we discuss her depiction on screen from the many actresses over the years including Judi Dench, Kate Blanchett and Margot Robbie but we also discuss Elizabeth's presentation of herself during the Spanish Armada so hopefully at the end of the episode you'll have a rounded view of who she was. Stephen is the author of a number of novels and history books, and his latest is The Queen's Fire. He's an old friend of the show and a master of Tudor and Stuart history. Coming up, I've got The Dark Ages next week. The film club continues with Gallipoli, and as it features running, I'll be discussing the history of running with Duncan Larkin in that episode. Plenty more great history to come, including Tom Holland, and Paul Lay joins me to talk Oliver Cromwell's protectorate. In the meantime, I'll hand you over to me, talking with Stephen Verapen on Elizabeth I. Stephen Virapen, welcome back. It's great to have you back on because uh, last time we spoke, you did promise to return to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Yes, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to eagerly anticipating it. Yeah, so listeners, it is the top 10 Elizabeth I's on screen. So frame of reference, I think that's TV and film, isn't it? Yes, it is. And so we're going to run through Stephen listeners. If you recall a few months ago, Stephen joined to talk about top 10 Tudor myths top turned out to be 11. And we're talking to Stephen today in the context of his latest novel that's out called the queen's fire, which is the third of his Christopher Marlowe mysteries. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the fire. That is the Spanish armada. Uh, once we've gone through our top 10. So listeners, strap in. This will be a ride through the 20th and early 21st century depictions of Elizabeth I on screen. So should we kick off with number 10? Yes, go for it. It's Florence Eldridge in Mary of Scotland. Yes, and I actually wish now that when I was writing this, I had seen Seven Seas to Cali. And I would have taken out Florence Eldridge and slotted in Irene Morth instead, because they're both good. They're both um, interesting performances. Florence Eldridge was in uh, Mary of Scotland with Catherine Hepburn, and it was apparently a notorious box office flop. And it got it was one of the films that got Catherine Hepburn described as box office poison, because it was apparently so so poorly performing, but. Florence Eldridge is she's good in it, and it's an interesting part. It's very much the idea of Elizabeth as the nemesis to Mary Stuart, and that's the kind of role that she has to play, and she plays it well. It's from the nineteen thirties, so it's that very clipped theatrical delivery, but um, she is good in it, and she she's an interesting Elizabeth. I have to say, she holds her own against Catherine Hepburn, who's 
a not very convincing Mary Queen of Scots, I have to say, with her, her Yankee accent. Oh, right. So she's an American. She's not really bothered with a with a slight... Because would Mary... Would Mary... I don't think I've asked you this. Would Mary have had a slight Scottish accent? That is a big question. In fact, I'm doing another podcast on that very subject, Mary Queen of Scots accent. I hope podcast on Mary Queen of Scots accent in, um, in a few weeks' time, I think, towards the end of August. What we tend to see is Mary being played with either a Scottish accent or in some production, just an English accent, there's no attempt, or a French accent, because she was raised in France from the ages of five up until she returned to Scotland. So what did she sound like? We don't know. <laughs> I, I think most likely is that she spoke Scots, the language, with a French accent, which I, I really, I almost struggled to think what that would sound like, speaking Scots with a French accent. However, there is one piece of evidence from her early days of captivity in England where an Irish observer, I believe, said that she spoke with a, a pretty Scotch accent. The one way of squaring it, I think, is in the period, if you spoke another language, you were encouraged to use the accent of that language. How do we know that? Because Elizabeth I took umbrage when a French ambassador criticised her French accent when she spoke French. So the assumption we can make there is if you were speaking another language, you were supposed to use the accent. So it's possible that Mary spoke French with a French accent and Scots a Scottish accent. But Catherine Hepburn does neither. <laughs> she just does a, a kinetic accent. I find that fascinating accent. So and um, would Elizabeth I have had a, a kind of public school girl type accent? Oh, oh, we'll maybe speak about that later when we come to that Miranda Richardson. Okay, um, we'll, we'll hold up. We can hold off on that if you like. But I think uh, the accents amongst the upper classes right up until the Victorian period and during the Victorian period were not the kind of RP that we think of upper class English accents. Now they still use quite a lot of regional accents, the upper classes. So I think there must have been such a thing as an, an educated upper class accent, but we don't really know what it would have sounded like. It certainly wouldn't have sounded like, it wouldn't have sounded like Glenda Jackson. It wouldn't have sounded like um, any of the actresses that have played Elizabeth I. But um, I, I'm sure was, uh, I read somewhere that Queen Victoria did something like um used ain't or something like that used things that you would not associate with upper class RP so yeah it's a fairly recent invention high class upper class English accent yeah Victorians have got a lot to answer for I think mm -hmm. right number nine Anne-Marie Duff I love Anne-Marie Duff this is Anne-Marie Duff in the Virgin Queen of 2005 which I think was a is it a TV film it was a, a I think a three or four part TV series. I wouldn't say a four part series. I I, I was in school when this, when this was shown as a, as a little baby. Um, but I, I really like Anne-Marie Duff as well. But I didn't buy her as Elizabeth. And I, I tried to think a little bit why. And I think, I don't think it was the actress's fault. I think it was probably the script, which has a lot of her telling people all the things she can do and all the things she's capable of and all the languages she speaks, but we never see it. So uh, it kind of fell a bit flat for me. What I also could never get past was it tried to do an Elizabeth R and tell the story of Elizabeth's entire life. But when they got to the elder Elizabeth, they used this really strange old age makeup 
which was actually worse than the makeup in the 70s. And it just made her look like an alien. And it was kind of hard to take. I, you can see stills and things of it, and it's bizarre looking. Um, so I think it was a kind of a production that could have been better. It might just have needed more episodes to, to let her really become Elizabeth. But she looked the part as the young Elizabeth. I thought she really looked it. But I, I always got the impression watching it, and I've watched it again multiple times, it's watchable, it's a good production. It just feels very much like you're watching an actress, a modern actress play Elizabeth. It never feels like you're watching Elizabeth. It's a shame because Amory Duff is, I mean, she's hugely powerful. Yeah, yeah. I've seen her do some really amazing parts. So you'd think that this is so well cast for this. I, I think interesting, I think, if they had Sienna Gillery, who plays Latisse Knollis in the show, I thought she would have made a better Elizabeth than Anne Marie Duff. Sadly not. Thumbs down for Anne Marie Duff, unfortunately. Uh, number eight, Flora Robson in uh, Fire Over England. And this is this film was made in 1937. Yes, so this is another very theatrical performance. And I actually think that's where Anne-Marie Duff fell down. This will sound odd, but her performance was too naturalistic. Whereas Elizabeth I and all early modern monarchs were actors. I mean, they, they, Elizabeth made reference to herself being on a stage, princes are on stages. And I think the older acting style really captures that because it is really theatrical people giving it bombastic speeches. Um, and Flora Robson's just fantastic in everything that you can find her in. And it's also a good script. It's one of those scripts where it kind of follows the Shakespearean thing of mentioning Elizabeth and everyone being frightened of Elizabeth before we see her march onto the stage. Um, and she's just powerful in it, powerful actress. And I know it's a cliche, but she steals every scene that she's in for her Robson. You can't sort of help but look, be watching her. Well, one thing I'd say, and I'm going to put a link in for the listeners to have a look at the blog that Stephen's written about this. And there is a, an image of each Elizabeth. And I think for many of the Elizabeths, they all seem to be using the same costume <laughs> starting in 1937. I wonder if it's just handed down. But they do go for this, you know, the huge kind of, uh, background. I don't know. Rough is not quite the right word, is it? It's sort of a screen almost. It's sort of butterfly wings. Yeah, like a dog has when they've yeah. had an operation. <laughs> yes, the cone. But um, <laughs> but is uh, uh, how accurate is that? I, th- I seem to recall there is one painting of her in something resembling one, that garment. Is that yes. right? I'm just trying to sort of bend sideways to see if you can see some of the images of Elizabeth that I've got behind me. Um, yes. Yeah, I can see them. Yeah, and you can see the sort of butterfly wing, open rough. It was accurate. And a lot of the costumes seem to really run with the late 1590s look when things were really, really elaborate and over the top and huge drum-like farthing heel um, skirts and dresses and things. So there does seem to be almost a, a desire, I think, to make Elizabeth look like portraits or even an approximation of those really eye-catching huge dresses, huge sleeves, huge gowns, uh, portraits. And I think it's just probably visual shorthand for filmmakers to say, look, this is the Elizabethan period. Look at the big rocks, uh, look at the jewels and all of that. 
Well, I guess when you mentioned the late 1590s, then I suppose that's number seven. We've got Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love, which was oh, yeah, made yeah. in 1998. That that's around about that time for her, isn't it? Yes, and this was an, another. Well, we've not come to Kate Blanchett yet, but this was an Oscar-winning performance. I think. She's only in it for five minutes, isn't she? Yeah, yes. In fact, I've noted down here how long eight minutes. So yeah, more than five minutes. She got a whole eight minutes. A whole extra three minutes there to do her stuff and she is very good it's Judy Dench she's she's always good I have to say though she doesn't look the part despite again the, the big 1590s dress whenever I watch that movie I see Judy Dench and, and she can't help that it's she's very distinctive looking and um I can't help but think she, she doesn't really look like Elizabeth first she looks much more like Judy Dench unsurprisingly but that's not her fault I think she she does a lot with a very small part, as the, the Academy decided. Indeed, although I have a bit of... A, well, interestingly, it wasn't the only film that was only Elizabeth-themed film up for the Oscar that year, because Kate Blanchett's Elizabeth was... Oh, was that the same year? ...nominated for Best Picture, yes. And, and actually, it was quite a strong year for Best, best Film, uh, because you also had Saving Private Ryan, The Thin Red Line, uh, Life is Beautiful, that Holocaust Italian film set in the Holocaust, uh, as well as Elizabeth and Shakespeare in Love, with Shakespeare in Love winning. Strong year. Oh, that's, yes, you sometimes get those at 1939. You get famous strong years where there's all these classics. So moving on. So we'll talk. So you mentioned Kate Blanchett, um, which we're going to talk about, but not yet because it's number six. Patience Collier, 1978's Will Shakespeare. And this is one that I think not a lot of people have seen, although I believe all the episodes are on YouTube. I have it on DVD because I still use DVDs, but I think all the, the episodes are on YouTube. And it's a, it's Tim Curry as Shakespeare, which is, again, so that is worth the price of admission alone. Tim Curry is fantastic. Uh, but it's a strong cast throughout. And... Uh, it's a TV series which kind of fictionalises Shakespeare's life. And the premise is that every episode is based on the production of a new play. Uh, and it kind of ties in what's going on in his life with whichever the, the play of the week is almost. Elizabeth appears as a character played by uh, Patience Collier, I think two episodes. And what I like about the performance is it's not over the top. She plays Elizabeth, the older Elizabeth again, 1590s um, and I think early 1600s we see her as well, as a kind of jaded, tired, but still very intelligent, politically astute figure. She's still very much a, a queen or a woman in control. Um, and it's just a pitch perfect performance. So that's why I rated it above Judy Dench. She gets more screen time for one thing, but I actually think it's, it's doing very much what Shakespeare in Love did which is showing and fictionalising the influence of Elizabeth on Shakespeare. But I think Patience Collier does it better because she just, she doesn't play it as Judy Dench does with that sort of knowing look in her eye. She plays it straight and that works more for me. I always think with, with Judy Dench, and this is again the script for Shakespeare in Love, which is kind of self-aware and witty, she's playing it with that kind of wink at the audience, which is fun. Patience Collier plays it straight and plays it seriously and it, it just works. And obviously both are, uh, are all about the relationship between, or they're not about the relationship between Shakespeare and the Queen, but Shakespeare and the Queen interact. And do we know how 
close they were or uh, close is probably the wrong word do we know they, if they even that. had a relationship friendly or otherwise we don't we don't know if she ever noticed him took any notice of him um never made all these heart-to-hearts and, and private meetings and privy chambers and things um we actually have more evidence of King James's relationship with Shakespeare than we do with Elizabeth. So it's sometimes frustrating that drama series and TV shows and all of this really, really want to run with Shakespeare and Elizabeth. None of them seem all that interested in Shakespeare and James. Although that same series, the Tim Curry, Will Shakespeare, the final episode does bring James in as a character. And um, that's one of, one of those rare appearances we get of James on screen. And you should know all about James because you're writing a book on, on James, aren't you? Yes, um, which will be out in September. Very wisest fool. Yes, I'm very excited to talk to you about that. James is a, a very interesting individual. Right, so we're now into the top five, and this is a, a legend of Hollywood, Betty mm. Davis, playing uh, Elizabeth in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, and this was made in 1939. Yes, she played Elizabeth twice on screen. She played her in The Private Lives and she also played her in The Virgin Queen, which I think was the 1950s and wasn't anywhere near as good. And I thought this is probably a controversial choice to have her rated in the top five above Judi Dench, for example, because people seem to either love or hate Betty Davis as Elizabeth. Some people, I think, find it a very mannered performance. She's got the kind of constant twitching and all of that. But again, that is that theatricality, I think, that really works in the part. I think she famously shaved the top of her forehead quite a ways back because she was young when she played the older Elizabeth, the 1590s Elizabeth. I think she was only in her 30s. And you wouldn't know it. This, I don't mean that this harshly. You wouldn't know it to look at her. You would think you're looking at an elderly woman because she, she carries herself in a kind of aged way. She uh, is made up to look old. Um, I think Betty Davis was famous for not being a vain actress. She would commit to the parts and look the part and act the part. And it's just a fun film. It's ahistorical. There's the infamous scene towards the end where Essex is about to be executed and she's screaming and crying out, take England, take my throne, which you could never imagine the real Elizabeth countenancing for a second. But it's a, it's a fun melodrama. And I think she's one of the first actresses, I think, who played Elizabeth as a real character. So we spoke about Florence Eldridge and about uh, Flora Robson earlier. And as I said, they are good, but they are just very much playing the parts written, these big bombastic clipped parts. Betty Davis, I think, was the first to really dig into the history of Elizabeth. So her mannerisms are not based on nothing. She extrapolated on, on historical sources to give her the constant fidgeting and things like that. So she really was the first to develop the historical part of the character. Well, with the private lives of Elizabeth and Essex, I mean, Essex was a lot younger than, than Elizabeth, wasn't he? Yes. So is the infatuation more on... Was it, was it more on his side than it was on Elizabeth's side? But well, I, I've also written about Elizabeth and Essex, and I think Essex was weird. He was just weird, and he was obsessed with the idea of chivalry. So I think he really was attracted to Elizabeth, despite the age gap, but it wasn't in a sexual way, I don't think. He was very attracted to the power and the sort of image of majesty. And it's almost weird because... If the genders were flipped, we wouldn't really be surprised about 
uh, if someone said a young female or a young girl female, sorry, was interested in an older man because of power, because of the sort of image that you've seen it throughout history. So I think that's what we're seeing here, is he was uh, really one of the few people to genuinely buy into the idea of courtly love and the unattainable woman. And he saw that wrapped up in this package of majesty and, and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and from her perspective, she liked the attention. She thought she could control him. She um, had to manage factions at her court. So like, she, she was interested in him. But again, it's been suggested it was in a maternal way, which I disagreed with. I don't think Elizabeth had a maternal bone in her body. I don't think she was interested. I think she was genuinely attracted to him, but not in a sexual way. And it was the same from his perspective. So yeah, this sort of really interesting relationship. Well, there's a great line that you've picked out, and as you've done for all of the Elizabeths, but this one I, I, I was it speaks to, to what you've just been talking about, which is, I think her line is what, to be a queen is to be less than human, to put pride before desire, to search men's hearts for tenderness and find only ambition. Yes, I, I can hear Betty Davis saying it in my head there. A great script, I think. Again, it's fantasy history to some extent. And it's a very 1930s, there's almost a sort of buddy relationship where they're laughing together and patting each other's backsides. It's just a fun, intelligent script that really bears little relationship to actual history. I think that's one thing you, you tended to see in the 30s, 40s, 50s in historical films, even when the history was nonsense. Uh, the other example I think of is the, the Barbara Stanwyck and Clifton Webb Titanic movie from 1953. The history is nonsense. I mean, it's, it's completely, every, almost everything about the Titanic, it gets wrong, but it's still an intelligent script. It's still a, a really interesting relationships that it depicts. So I don't know, maybe we've lost that. Because I think now we want historical accuracy, which I, so do I. I mean, I, obviously, why don't you just use real history? Back then, they, they didn't seem to care as much about accurate yeah. history. They cared more about clever scripts. I, I suppose a good example of that, I guess, I guess it's uh, nearly 30 years ago now, is Braveheart, which... It, from a historical standpoint, is is a, once again pretty nonsensical, isn't yeah, it? Just made up. <laughs> but it's lots yeah. of fun. Yeah, yeah. So I think it there wasn't maybe as much leeway in the nineties because that movie I think got a lot of criticism even then. Whereas maybe decades before that, people didn't care as much about historical accuracy. You'd think it wouldn't be beyond the wit of screenwriters to do both, though, to have witty scripts with interesting characters. And to have historical accuracy at the same time. Yeah, well, one, well, well the next interpretation of Elizabeth um, is is her as a much younger woman, and that's Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett in in the title role, made in nineteen ninety eight. So same year as Shakespeare in Love, and yeah, she's a lot younger. And I remember watching this in the cinema twice. I loved it so much. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. I think this is actually almost a, a kind of spiritual relative to Braveheart because the history is nonsense. The history is made up. It's fantasy. But it doesn't matter because it's just a good script. It's really interesting, powerful performances, characters with interesting relationships that you are invested in and you, you want to, to keep watching. Kate Blanchett in this one, I think, is just 
really, really good. She's captivating as the young Elizabeth. She is intelligent. The character as written is intelligent. She plays it fantastically. And as I say, it doesn't even matter that the history's all wrong, that people are their own ages, that people are... All these things are just... So I almost get the impression that maybe he, he wasn't sure that he would get to make a second one, so he threw everything into the first one. And then he did get the opportunity to make the second one and so had the dregs left. <laughs> That's why the Golden Age wasn't particularly um, well-received. Yeah, I, I, I thought the Golden Age was awful, but I don't know whether I need to have another look at it because I, I saw it on a plane. I, no, I've watched it again and you probably don't need to. But I, I, I'm curious as to why, because the Golden Age is, again, the history is nonsense. But the history in the first one was nonsense, so that can't be the fault. The fault isn't that it gets the history of the period wrong and anything. I thought Elizabeth was really good because it was quite dark and it showed court to be pretty treacherous and a pretty, you'll say again, because this is territory I'm not hugely familiar with, but, you know, there's a knifing at every corner in in Hampton Court or wherever it was. And... And, w- and when there was brutality, it really was nastily. It was shown uh, blood and guts mm. and all. So you see a priest played by Daniel Craig being tortured by Jeffrey yes. Rush's Walsingham and all that stuff. It just made it, I guess it it spoke to the, the Elizabethan period that I, I kind of imagined was true in that, you know, if you were caught or suspected of treason, you certainly did pay for it in pain. Yeah. Well, it was, um, I've, I've seen it likened to The Godfather. Even the way some of it is shot, I think it's uh, you know the, the famous scene in The Godfather um, that cuts between the church and people being killed. It's similar thing is is used, and that's I suppose the argument is that's what early modern nobility and monarchs were like. They were like the mafia, offing their enemies and things, which is, is an interesting reading of it. Why this the second one didn't work? I think one. I mean, Walsingham should have been there in the first movie, but he was just the second one. It had a kind of confused story. It didn't have the arc for Elizabeth. I mean, if the purpose of the movies is to show a character's journey, the first one did that for Elizabeth. The second one, though she was queen, she'd she'd achieved what she had at the end of the first one, become the Virgin Queen, again, even though that was wrong historically. But the second one had nowhere to go as a character. I think it tried with the Armada, but it, it didn't quite work a, a story that didn't have a character and a journey in it whereas the first one had that in spades it was fantastic i think the first one's cast was a bit better as well i mean you had great french actors well one great french actor vincent cassel and then one great footballer eric Cantona. Oh, yes <laughs> that was random actually it was always odd casting but it worked so it did it did right we've lingered on elizabeth let's move to number three and I, I really enjoy this film. And this is Margot Robbie in Mary, Queen of Scots from 2018. Yes. Again, one that I think people would be surprised to see her maybe rate more, rated more highly than uh, Kate Blanchett. I thought she was fantastic in this movie. Uh, why did I rate her above Kate Blanchett? Well, one, I suppose criticism and it's, it's not even really a criticism but one thing I would say about Kate Blanchett is that her performance even in the first Elizabeth was in the shadow of Glenda Jackson so she played 
Elizabeth, as Glenda Jackson had played her, it was that commanding, sort of really cunning view, which is probably accurate. I mean, it's probably true. But we'd seen it before. I mean, as much as I like the movie Elizabeth, the character that Kate Blanchett plays, the version of Elizabeth that Kate Blanchett plays, I had seen it before, I think, in uh, Glenda Jackson's performance. What I liked about Margot Robbie's is I think it is the only portrayal of Elizabeth that shows her really vulnerable. We don't see that insecure Elizabeth, which existed in history. I mean, the historical Elizabeth I was not, as much as she wanted people to think, she was not this eternally secure, bombastic figure. She was vulnerable. She was insecure. She was constantly under threat. It was interesting to see something different on screen. I actually thought with the Mary Queen of Scots movie, the performances were better than the film. I had issues with the film, not for its treatment of history. I, I don't mind when the films play around with as, as you've seen from the others on the list, I don't mind when they play around with the history, but if they're entertaining. I think this film was just a bit boring. Or, or did you enjoy it? I, I did enjoy it because I quite liked the the way it, it, it seemed to quite realistically show the relationships between Mary and her two husbands. Um, mm. Well, the, her second and third husbands, I should say. Mm. Um, Darnley and... and Bothwell. 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 That's the one. Yeah, I quite liked it. that. That seemed to be really well done. And the scene, the famous scene when uh, her piano teacher or, or is is murdered. Rizzo. Oh, yes, yeah. I found that very powerful, mm. shocking scene. Yeah. And knowing oh. that that actually happened as well. I, I mean, I, I just thought that, um, you know, so I guess it was the Scottish element I found most interesting. Yes, well, this one has a flaw that I actually, well, it's a flaw to me, it probably isn't to other people, um, that I also think existed in Elizabeth. Now, if you remember the Kate Blanchett Elizabeth movie, did you ever think, why is she living in this vast stone cathedral? Constantly saw Elizabeth and Mary Tudor as well, Kathy Burke. They were living in these really odd, medieval-looking, gothic stone cathedrals, and that's not anything like what, Elizabethan era, even Tudor era palaces looked like. And that annoyed me a bit for some reason. And this film had the same problem. Whenever we saw Mary, whenever we saw Mary Queen of Scots, she was living in what looked like caves, rocky stone walls. And I just, again, the Scottish Renaissance was a thing that had happened. Um, So that annoyed me. The costumes as well, I know. Yeah, I think costumes were very 21st century. leather and things like that which was weird to me because it did seem script wise to be trying to be a straight history I mean it seemed to be sort of playing the history straight but against this weird sort of fantasy backdrop so I think it was just a mishmash of styles I think that was maybe the problem I had but not with the performances the performances were um, what you'd expect from, from brilliant actresses yeah, I think I think that's definitely fair to say. Right, we're we're top two now, and mm. number t- at number two is Helen Mirren, who was in Elizabeth the First in two thousand and five, and I think this was Channel Four. Yes, I think this went toe to toe with um, 
the Virgin Duff's Elizabeth. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just thought Helen Mirren was was brilliant as Elizabeth. She was a, a very flirty Elizabeth, which the real Elizabeth could be extremely flirty. She was passionate. She had the look as well. They gave her, I think, black contact lenses, so she had that sort of beady-eyed look. I, I've actually seen her criticised for playing Elizabeth apparently the same as she played Catherine the Great, but I haven't seen her as Catherine the Great. I know that this was more recently, apparently, I think another TV show. She supposedly gave almost the same performance. Without having seen it, I don't care because it was a great performance. Well, she she also famously played the Queen as in Elizabeth II. And of course, got, yes. got an Oscar for that. Yeah, and that was nothing like her version of Elizabeth, completely different character. The show itself, again, if you liked the movie Elizabeth, this show, which is set in the, the later part of Elizabeth the First Life, is a better sequel to the Kate Blanchett Elizabeth than the Golden Ages. It has the violence, it has the gory scenes. In fact, again, so this was out at the same time as The Virgin Queen. I, I was a kid when it was on, and there was one scene just made me feel sick. Maybe I, I had to look away from the screen. It shows the real-life publisher, John Stubb, who wrote a tract against one of Elizabeth's mooted marriages, and he was arrested for this and tried for this and sentenced to have his hand chiselled off, chisel on it, hammered through it, and then he had to take off his hat and say, God save the Queen with his bleeding stump. Uh, so that happened, and we see it on screen in all its gory detail. Obvious, I hope prosthetic, spurting blood and all that stuff. Again, we see people being hanged, drawn and quartered, and their guts thrown on braziers. It's it's a brutal series, but it's it's really good. And again, it's top-class actors. It's not just Helen Mirren, but Jeremy Irons as well. Hugh Dancy as Essex. Um, so it's, it's worth watching. Another one that I have on DVD, I watch watch frequently. Great stuff. I have actually met Helen Mirren during the filming of The Mosquito Coast. Amazing. But I what? have to confess, I was a little bit more interested in the chap sitting next to her. And that was Harrison Ford. <laughs> anyway, we'll tell, move on to number one. Number is, one. Is Harrison Ford as grumpy as people say? No, he was absolutely charming. Lovely man. Brilliant. Because I just saw the new Indiana Jones film. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well. Didn't so much like cracking a tooth on a bit of popcorn while I was seeing it, but I still stayed. (laughs) Right. Well, number one, we're at number one, and you have mentioned her a few times, and Mm. it's Glenda Jackson in Elizabeth R. And this was 1971. Yes, the late. It's a TV TV series as well, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. Um, Six part. TV series covering Elizabeth's reign from, from her childhood, really, which we see sort of filmed as if it's through her eyes, to her death. And it's the definitive Elizabeth first on screen. I think um, if you have seen Glenda Jackson as Elizabeth, you've almost been spoiled for, for others to the extent that it almost seems like other actresses are, as I said, even Kate Blanchett, it almost feels like they're playing Glenda Jackson's Elizabeth because she's that recognisable and powerful in the role. What I would say as well is the 
costumes for this one, since we spoke a bit about costumes earlier, 1970-71 has the best costumes that have ever been shown better than the big budget Hollywood movies. Every costume, as far as I know, that we see Elizabeth in was based on a portrait, or nearly all of them were based on actual portraits. I don't know how they did it. They, they did it on a shoestring budget, but despite the really stagey 1970s sets, it just looks fantastic because all the characters are in these brilliant, period-accurate costumes. And Glenda Jackson is just, again, like Betty Davis, I think she, she had her head shaved or partly shaved. She really, really went for it with this role and it just seemed to become Elizabeth I. So do you think, <clears throat> I guess it depends on the age, but uh, the age of the Elizabeth you're portraying, but is it important to have a um, slightly balding top part of your... <laughs> I, it, I suppose it adds that, that extra layer of accuracy and it shows that the actress is going the extra mile. I suppose it's like, um, what was it, the actor who played Henry VIII in the Tudors? And oh, Jonathan Rhys Mayers. Jonathan Rhys Mayers, um, and said he he refused to wear a fat suit. He didn't want to to wear a fat suit. But well, if you were really committed to the role, I'm sure you would have wouldn't just have worn a fat suit, but you would have popped up for it. So it helps, I think. It, it helps if the the actor is really committed to looking the part. I, I should say though, in the final episode, one of my big criticisms of Elizabeth R is it perpetuates and maybe even popularised the idea that she looked like a freak in her final years. It has her painted in really, really white makeup right down to the tips of her fingers, her chest, her face. She, it's clown makeup that they put her in um, with these big red cheeks. And there's no evidence of that, but everyone believes it. Everyone believes that, I think, partly due to this series, which is otherwise fantastic. People seem to think, yeah, Elizabeth I is an old woman. She, she looked like a monster. She looked like a freak. Yeah, presumably she would have been this sort of mother of the nation figure. She'd achieved so much by then, hadn't she? Yeah, I think um, she, because of the Armada, actually, she, she had her Armada moment, which she, she didn't really like war. She was averse to war. She, she didn't want it but she knew how to make the most of it. And so with that famous Tilbury speech, she was able to create a, a really lasting image of herself as a warrior queen. And she never was a warrior queen in any way. She never led troops, never wanted to fight, but she capitalized on the moment and transformed herself. We'd call it propaganda now into this martial figure. And that lasted for decades, and then it got resurrected under James because James was a real peacemaker. He was almost a pacifist king. And in the six, late 1610s, 1620s, when the Thirty Years' War was going on and a lot of belligerent Englishmen wanted a warrior king, they were looking back and said, oh, remember Elizabeth, remember the warrior queen, the Protestant warrior queen, and she never was one. But that Tilbury moment allowed it to seem like she had been one became really mythologized. Well, hold that thought because we're going to get on to that. Now, this being a top 10 from Stephen Virapin would not be a top 10 without having an 11. <laughs> and uh, and number 11 would actually probably be my, my, my number one. And that is Miranda Richardson 
as Queenie in Blackadder. How could you not have her on the list, really? She must be the first Elizabeth I ever saw on screen because I'm sure that I must have seen Blackadder when I was a little kid, so like before I was watching Elizabeth added anything like that or even the Virgin Queen. And why is that role so memorable and so good? Is it to do with the scripts of Ben Elton and Ben Elton and Richard Curtis? Richard Curtis. And I've watched documentaries about Blackadder. And from what I've seen, it was Miranda Richardson. She brought that to the table. She, uh, I think the cast had a lot of input in writing those scripts. And she brought that idea of Elizabeth as just a, a really petulant, bitchy, unpredictable. Well, she's this sort of spoiled student. toddler, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. Spoiled toddler uh, as, a, as an adult. And I, I guess, yeah, this is where she's a kind of spoiled brat probably was like that when she was five years old. <laughs> I mean, that's what Blackadder always did so well. It was having people and figures, or positions rather, of authority. Absolute shits. Be horrible, but also completely incompetent and insane. I mean, it, so it wasn't later on, it was General Melchett and um, the Prince Regent in the third series. It just seemed to be incredibly lucky with fantastic actors fantastic comic actors that could take these figures and just make them monsters, like really, really funny, endearing monsters. Yeah, it, it mean, is She fantastic. was the best of them. Absolutely yeah, yeah. Fantastic. She really is. Right. So you've mentioned the Armada, and this is the subject of your new novel, Stephen. Yes. And The Queen's Fire. And, I mean, it's interesting. You talked about her not being a warrior warrior queen but she does i mean her speech isn't it i i uh, her speech that she makes at tilbury mm. she she may not have led people into battle but with that speech and I'm, I'm sure you can i think i've got the lines somewhere i know i have the body of a weak and feeble woman but i have the heart and stomach of a king but sh surely she's grasping the mantle there and saying i am a warrior queen i want to look like a warrior queen see I, i'm very cynical about this because the danger had passed of the Armada. The Armada had already been scattered and was on its way right up past Scotland at this time. There was going to be no fight by the time she gave this speech. The next day, she disbanded the army without pay and a lot of them ended up starving to death. She did nothing to help them. Burley, in fact, who was presumably of her mind, there's a, a famous or infamous memorandum that he wrote, I think weighing up the pros and cons, should we pay these people? Should we let them starve to death and not be a burden? And that's what they went with. So we act as charities to pay starving former soldiers and sailors. So yes, it's a, she knew how to play the part of a warrior queen. She had very little interest or liking for either war or battles or apparently soldiers. That's interesting because that is something that certainly you don't see any kind of um, uh, in any kind of screen adaptation. But do you think then that Elizabeth is, I mean, obviously she's a master of publicity there. Mm. Has that, has that, has that kind of overshadowed the Elizabeth that we should? Absolutely. And it links directly to discussion of some of those films and TV shows, because we saw, I think the Tilbury speech in Elizabeth Golden Age, we saw it in Elizabeth R. We saw it in the Helen Mirren, Elizabeth the first I think we saw it in Flora Robson giving it. 
we have seen it on screen multiple times. Now, if you watched any of those screen adaptations, you would think that that was her giving a speech on the eve of a battle, the day before a battle, and then they went on to fight, you know, fired up from that. They didn't. They were sent home the next day. There was a brief rumour that um, the Duke of Parma was going to invade, but it was nonsense and clearly no one believed it or they wouldn't have been disbanded the next day. So I think it's, again, the power of that image of her. And we don't even know really what she wore, how she was dressed, but you'll always see it. And I have to admit, I put this in the book because it's fiction and I can, but I mentioned in the author's notes, we don't know. There's the, the steel breastplate and the truncheon and the, the white feather and the cap and all that. Um, we don't know if she was dressed like that. And there were lots of competing versions of, of the speech that she supposedly gave, so we don't even know exactly what she said. But it doesn't matter because it's such a powerful image. It's obviously lived on in all of these productions. It's almost weird, but we still fall for Elizabethan propaganda propaganda that's hundreds of years old we still buy into it i think nowadays i think some people are starting to really question it in fact i've had a sneak peek at an upcoming book the ian dale edited kings and queens i'm doing james the james chapter anna whitelock is doing elizabeth first and i read her chapter and it's really good and it really deconstructs the idea of the big, powerful warrior Queen Elizabeth. It's really fairly critical of, of some of the assumptions that we have about Elizabeth. Well, I suppose you see a lot of books about espionage in historiography, really, don't you? And is that then therefore a more accurate view of her? She's much more willing to engage in like, the dark arts of, of spying and, and Although, assassination. Yeah, um, as long as it was not laid at her door, so, for example, with Mary Queen of Scots, again, infamously, um, as, why, hasn't, why hasn't someone found a way to kill her quietly <laughs> so that it, the blood is not on my hands? So she had absolutely no qualms about engaging in the underbelly, the, the, as you say, the dark arts. She just didn't want people knowing about it. Yeah. Um, well, again, that, that was probably a good thing, though. I mean, you, well, you, absolutely. You can't. The last thing you want is that. Uh, laid at a monarch's door monarchs bumping mm. off other monarchs that's yeah. not a good look is it yeah and also it'd be worse i suppose if all of this espionage was going on and she had no idea about it so mm. she, she was very good at playing dumb she she didn't know these things were happening she knew she knew <laughs> she was up to her neck in it well the, the christopher marlowe the great playwrights your hero is is he died very young didn't he um 1593 stabbed in the eye Yes. Do we know whether he ever met uh, Elizabeth? No, no. There's um, no evidence that he ever met Elizabeth I. And I don't have him meet Elizabeth I. <laughs> I uh, without giving away the ending, uh, the climax is at Tilbury. So it is at Tilbury. He does overhear some of the Tilbury speech, but his, um, his mind is on other things. <laughs> it's a kind of frantic race whilst Elizabeth is giving her speech to these assembled soldiers. Well, there is a link back to what we were talking about because, of course, Marlowe and Shakespeare appear in Shakespeare in Love. Of course, Shakespeare's in that, but uh, Marlowe's in it as well. So, Stephen, Queen's Fire, it's out now. I'll put links to everything we've discussed for the listeners 
including all links to all those TV shows and, and films. And when's the Ian Dale book out? Uh, the Ian Dale book is out early September, something like the 10th of September, around then. Oh, I'd love to get in touch with uh, Mr. Dale, get him on to talk about that. Yeah, that'd and be yourself, great. of course. Yeah. Okay, Stephen, thanks so much. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Brilliant as always, Ollie. Thank you so much for listening. Please do share with friends. It really helps the pod to grow. Plenty more great history to come. But until then, thank you and good night.